You're listening to the IC interviews from Investors Chronicle. I'm Lenora Walters, and today I'm speaking to Nick Train, manager of global and UK equities funds, including Finsbury Growth and Income Trust and Ella Flintzel Train UK Equity. Over the 30 years that Mr. Train has worked in investment management, he has delivered outstanding returns with the funds he runs, including those managed by the investment firm he co-founded in 2000, Linsel Train Limited. Mr. Train and his colleagues' investment approach has been likened to that of high-profile US investor Warren Buffett because they build concentrated portfolios of financially strong, large global companies, which they rarely trade. Many of these fall into the consumer-branded goods sector and internet media and software, pharmaceuticals and financials companies also feature. So, Nick, one of your core investment beliefs is that concentration can reduce risks. So your funds tend to have far fewer holdings than many of their peers. But this goes against the view of uh, many investment analysts, wealth managers, etc. But you reduce risk by diversifying across many holdings. So why do you take this view? Uh, Partly it's a recognition of uh of authority uh, as as we might regard authority um and what i mean by that is um we've always been michael lintzel and i well for as long as lintzel trainers has lasted which is 20 years or more and actually prior to prior to setting up the company we've always been enormously influenced by berkshire hathaway um so by by buffett and munger um and you know, famously, uh, they've always argued for y- using the hackneyed phrase, but I think there's a value to the phrase. They've always argued for um, ha- having a few eggs in your basket and watching those eggs very, very closely. That that um, owning a few things that you at least have confidence in yourself that you understand um, and where you're confident in the resilience of what you're invested in, that that, that is less risky than owning, owning a wider range of assets or securities where you have much lower levels of confidence, uh, both in your understanding of the asset but but even in the sustainability of the of the underlying of the underlying asset, um, you know, M- Munger famously said that um, he thought that I don't know uh, an institution like Harvard, with its endowment, should probably only own eight shares in eight great global businesses. You know, he said you know that would be that would be perfectly sufficient to. Uh, protect the endowment, and it would also dramatically re- reduce the, the 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 complexity of of, of, of the endowment's portfolio and portfolio strategy. Um, so, 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 so if I might, if I might say the to us the the absolute essence of what we do across all of our portfolios is to own. What other people sometimes regard as um, very substantial holdings, big holdings, 
um, uh, which people perceive carry risk because the portfolios, as you remark, have relatively few holdings. But but our attempt is to have big holdings in inherently very very predictable low risk companies. That that that's the that's the absolute essence of the effect we're trying to capture to have big holdings but in very very substantive reliable assets um and from our perspective you know i don't know i mean the biggest holding we have in uh in the open-ended funds uh at the moment is unilever uh which also happens to be the biggest company quoted on the uk stock exchange now you know every company there is some risk attendant to it but i think most dispassionate people would say yeah you know unilever which has got you know the best part of a century of history and incredible predictability and resilience and diversification by product and brand around the world that that's not inherently a very risky investment um and it it it's you know not every company we own is a unilever but but it's that effect that we're looking to capture these companies um you describe the these companies that you target as exceptional durable cash generative companies so just getting more into the specifics what's your definition of a you know an, an exceptional company um, you know, that meets your criteria? And are there any companies that maybe have some of these attributes that, that don't meet your criteria? We are somewhat unusual in our uh, our interest in longevity of, of not just companies, but uh, actually it's the under, underlying brands and business franchises we're fascinated by by brands and franchises that have endured for decades uh, and in some cases things we own have endured for for centuries that 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 ability to remain relevant or beloved to to consumers or or users that strikes us as being important. You've been adding Experian to the funds you run. What in particular about this company meets your criteria? Why, you know, why why add it now? I, I think I, I think the the absolute nub of this is um, at, at the margin for our portfolios. We're comfortable. We're more than comfortable. We're very happy with the shape of how we are investors for our clients currently. But at the margin, we would like to increase our exposure to two types of company. Um, this is in a UK context. Uh, we'd like to increase our exposure, first of all, to companies with a high proportion of their sales coming from luxury or premium goods and services. Um, we're, we're persuaded that over the next 10 or 15 years, 
yeah, luxury premium aspirational products are going to be more and more sought after by consumers. Now, sorry, that's not experience, obviously, but I just wanted to put it into context of what we're doing at the margin of our portfolio. The other thing that we want to do for our portfolios is at the margin, increase the exposure we have to substantive UK companies doing something important with digital technology. And, you know, Relex and actually the London Stock Exchange are doing very, very important things with data and digital services and artificial intelligence currently. But Experian is another major UK company. It's a 25, 27 billion pound company that is doing something with digital data and software services that is materially increasing the value of its products and services for its customers. We've obviously um, been in fairly unprecedented circumstances over the past few months. So in terms of your investment investment process, which is fairly established, have you had to modify it or consider any new things, um, you know, when selecting an investment, you know, in view of, um, I suppose, the way the world's changed uh, recently? The underlying thematic ideas haven't changed. If anything, I think our, our confidence, if that's the right word, in those thematic drivers of investment returns have been reinforced by what's happened in 2020. Um, you know, I think it, you know, for investors like us in beloved consumer brands, seeing the the business performance of um, Dove Soap or the business performance of Cadbury Chocolate or the business performance of, uh, to pick a much smaller brand, Carex, for instance, you know, the, the, the hand sanitizer. I mean, Carex is owned by a relatively small UK company, PZ Cousins. That, that's had an incredible response to, to, um, to the circumstances we find ourselves in this year. The, the value of trusted and beloved consumer brands has gone up materially, in our opinion, in 2020, because consumers have flocked to such beloved and trusted brands. As we get deeper into the 21st century, it becomes clear that in the 20th century, growth involved physical capital. You know, you know, if you if you grew. You had to open a new shop or you had to lay down another railway track or you had to open a new factory. Your growth was expensive because growth required significant amounts of literal physical capital to drive that growth. By contrast, it does look a sustainable proposition that in the 21st century, growth is much less capital intensive. Digital makes growth almost virtual, the first thing it does is that produces intrinsically higher returns to capital than and to equity than were possible in the 20th century. And in turn, those higher returns to capital, because 
there's much less capital required for growth, deserve higher valuations. And I do observe us being willing to pay higher valuations for businesses that interest us than Michael Linsler and I might have done, let's say, back in the year 2000. Um, I mean, on on the subject of, um, I suppose, exploiting um, digitalization technology, your funds hold education product provider Pearson. But in one of your recent fund commentaries, you said it hasn't yet been able to prove whether tech will ultimately be a disruptor or or an enhancer to its business model and market position. So why do you continue to hold Pearson? In order to have the mindset yeah the 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 attitude that allows you to hold an investment for as long as we've held a winner like the london stock exchange the flip side of that is you, you you've got to, you've got you've got to hold everything for a long period of time you can't just choose to run your great successes because you never know whether they're going to carry on being a success you, 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 you either have a strategy that says, I'm going to be a long-term holder of a company, uh, almost whatever the share price does. I, I'm just going to be disciplined and stick to an idea until it definitively has proven to be wrong. Our Our position, for good or for ill, is... We've said we are long-term strategic investors. We'll take the rough with the smooth, but we think that if we hold for long periods of time, that gives us the best chance of success. Um, and so the reason that we still own Pearson is exactly the reason that we still own the London Stock Exchange, because it's simply a reflection of the decision we've taken about how to approach the investment challenge. Um, I, you know, I... I wish Pearson had been a massive success over the last 10 or 12 years. I mean, it's turned out not to be, but holding it has been consistent with what we've always said that we would do. I, I do think it's, it's also fair just, just to add to this, though. I think it is evident that the prize to any company that does work out a way to deliver educational services digitally, and particularly if they can begin to do that globally, that the reward for that could be very, very high indeed. And we have always thought and frankly continue to think that Pearson, that that is still an opportunity that this company has. Or putting it another way, there's no other company that has has taken that opportunity away from Pearson. It's still absolutely, to use the cliche, in the game. I mean, just in terms of, um, I suppose, on the flip side, the sort of selling, I mean, what would make you sell one of your holdings? We, we hate selling. I think selling anything is an admission that you've made a mistake. And although we do make mistakes, you know, we, we try and avoid making them. Um, I, I think people sell things far too often. Um, and so we prefer to, you know, to sometimes grit our teeth, you know, and, and 
try and maintain the discipline of having a concentrated portfolio of what you think are outstanding franchises and recognizing that they will go through tough times, but just saying that's an opportunity to add to what you thought was a wonderful asset. On the rare occasions that we've sold, it's tended to be either because often technology has just clearly obliterated the investment case for 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 a franchise also sometimes very rarely um companies can take decisions about their balance sheet companies can take decisions about borrowing that strikes us as being imprudent and we we have over the last few years occasionally sold out of companies where we felt that their their tolerance for debt had got higher than we were comfortable with. Hmm. And what was your most recent disposal? <laughs> I, I, I struggle to recall, actually. I mean, it. Um, I mean, we lost, we've lost a couple of things to take over over the last few years. Um, we inherited. Sorry, this is going to seem convoluted, but actually, it does slightly fit the fit the, the, the criteria I've been talking about. Long ago, we had a massive holding in Cadbury, um, and our massive holding in Cadbury turned into two holdings: um, Mondelez, which we still own, which is the business that owns Cadbury, as you probably know. But it also turned into a smaller holding into in in Kraft Heinz, um, and then and then there was a demerger, blah 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 blah. But anyway, we we, we had a, we had a holding in Kraft Heinz that we'd inherited out of Cadbury, and that was an asset that we sold out of completely um, because we thought the debt was worryingly high in in that company. Um, yeah, and, and that was a reason to sell. Okay. Um, just turning to um, another of your key investment beliefs, um, um, that's on dividends. And um, you, you say that you believe dividends matter. Why do you believe dividends matter so much? And in view of all the recent cuts and suspensions in the UK market, can you still consider this as such an important factor? If you look back over decades, companies that have turned out to be fabulous investments, um, uh, and again, I'm not talking about two years, I'm not even talking about five years, I'm talking about, we're interested in finding companies that, you know, for 30 years, for the next 30 years, are going to turn out to be fantastic investments. So that's the way we're thinking about allocating capital. On a post-hoc basis, when you look back over the last 30 years or the last 50 years, often companies that have turned out to be wonderful, wonderful long-term investments have also, and let's even say this word uh, deliberately, have also coincidentally turned out to be businesses that have been able to grow their dividends materially over time as well. Um It's not an absolute 100% correlation, but it's not a bad correlation. 
companies that have had phenomenal capital returns over multiple decades tend also, not in every case, but they often tend also to have got very strong dividend histories over the same period. And I think that's as far as I would like to go in this claim that that dividends and dividend histories are important to us. Um, But I also acknowledge, and maybe this is somewhere where our thinking may have to change a bit, I also acknowledge that some companies can get into a a rut of over-distributing dividends. And if they do, then it's much, much better um, for the company and for the owners of the companies over time that companies acknowledge that. And as we have seen in 2020, dividends being suspended or, or, or cut. I mean, that, that's, that's not a bad thing. I mean, do you place some you know, equal importance on holding companies which pay dividends across all your funds? I would say that across all of our funds, it's important to us to own businesses that have the potential to generate excess cash over time and that that cash could be returned to owners as dividends or share backs, share buybacks over time. Uh, I think for us, and this is by, you know, there are other people with different approaches, and I'm not saying those approaches are not valid. They are. But, but for us, owning a business where we simply couldn't conceive that there could ever be a dividend flow or a share buyback return, we would be unlikely to invest in a company like that um, because it would seem overly speculative to us. Okay, now thinking specifically about your UK funds, um, you know, obviously the UK market's been very challenged in some of those respects over the past few months, but um, you hold some overseas listed stocks. Would you consider increasing the UK funds overseas allocation to UK stocks in view of problems like, um, you know, dividend drought um, and I suppose the fact that UK, you know, um, equities uh, have a, you know, they've not had a good time recently? The answer is a, a, a profound and committed double no to the question. And the the reason why I I would say so robustly, I would say no to to that question is first, and this is a more trivial point, but I'll I'll make it nonetheless. um, We are relatively close to our permitted maximum in non-UK equities. You know, we're allowed to have up to 20%. In non-UK equities, we're at about 18 at the moment. So there there just actually today isn't a great deal of room for us to add more non-UK equities. So that's one reason why we we won't do any more. But the second reason, and the much, much more substantive reason, is I I am a believer. I'm a partial believer in this, or I'm a prejudiced believer in this, but I think that the UK equity market is really unreasonably 
undervalued relative to global peers currently. And if anything, I would rather be increasing my exposure to, to UK equities right now than reducing them. Okay, thank you, Nick. A really helpful update on your funds and some very interesting points for investors to consider. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.